Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your hosts, Oxygen Advantage founder Patrick McKeown and Daniel Paulson. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. Hello. We hear the word all the time, so I'm joined by two experts, Michael and Rain, and they're from Flow Research Collective. And I think this is going to be a great one of those conversations that I've been wanting to happen for a long time. I'm also joined, of course, by my sidekick, Daniel Paulson from Sweden. So so between the four of us, let's untackle what is flow. So for anybody that's just kind of starting to hear the word for the first time, how would you describe what flow is? I'll give the quick breakdown, Patrick. And first off, thank you very much for having myself and Dr. Minino on the podcast today. As I mentioned before we started recording, we've been huge fans of your work for, for years and years now, and you've done just incredible work for the field. So thanks for everything you've done. And um, so flow is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where you feel your best and you perform your best. That was a, a fairly broad definition that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was one of the co-founders of Positive Psychology, uh, landed upon when he first coined the term flow back in the 60s before a lot of the research was done. The description of flow that is most commonly used describes the qualitative nature of the state, meaning what it actually feels like, the experience of the state. And Csikszentmihalyi used to describe it as a state of rapt attention and total absorption, where you get so focused on the task at hand that everything else disappears. Action and awareness, so what you're doing and your awareness of what you're doing start to blend and merge. Your sense of self, which our partner Stephen often describes as your inner Woody Allen, that voice or inner monologue that's going on in your brain, that tends to quieten down and go offline. Um, so self-consciousness decreases. And then our sense of time distorts. So time dilates. Usually, especially in cognitive flow states, it speeds up. Sometimes in um, more physical flow states, and Michael can potentially later on speak to the mechanism behind this, it actually slows down. An example of time slowing down in flow is the classic visual of a surfer in the barrel of a wave, for example. And then throughout this experience of flow, lots and lots of research, again, since Csikszentmihalyi coined the term back in the 60s, have correlated it to increases in performance across multiple measures of performance from learning to creativity to metrics of overall life satisfaction, you know, like well-being, and happiness and sense of meaning as well. So that's a, that's a quick breakdown on, on flow. I'm happy to give a breakdown on, you know, what the flow research collective is as well, if that's useful too. Yeah, of course. So it's kind of, am I right in saying it's an absence of thought? It's being able to put the critical mind to some to, to one side. That would be a characteristic of flow, I would say. And Michael, maybe feel free to speak to that as well. Yeah, I think um, what the research showing is now, it's a little bit more nuanced than than just um, the absence of thought. There's a lot of um, creativity uh, that comes with flow. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of even critical thinking and being able to make decisions. So the decision-making areas of the brain are involved. So I would say it's the absence, like there's, there's this absent, there's this uh, aspect that Rian was talking about, ego dissolution. So there, the default mode network of the brain, which is involved in mind wandering and self-thought and self-referential thought and rumination and that kind of thing, that sort of area of the brain in a flow state sort of attenuates and goes away. So it's the absence of that aspect of thinking that goes away that allows other aspects of thinking to really flourish like lateral thinking or pattern pattern recognition and so on yeah just to build on that for a second michael the way i would think about it or one way that may be useful is to think of it as the absence of conscious thought or certain you Mm. know certain elements of us being aware of the thought that is occurring decrease but that doesn't mean that our cognition is you know absent to, to Michael's point, there are elements of our cognition that actually are heightened and become more effective within flow. We're just less conscious of it occurring. That's right. Yeah. Michael, could you could you go through what 
the actual flow cycle and what happens in the brain and the body. And I'm, I'm curious to know the difference between having a flow state for, like, say, a few minutes. And can you have flow states over days and weeks? Uh, um, so, yeah, if you if you could take us through that, that'd be great. Yeah. So what the current research shows is that flow is not sort of a binary process. It's more of a cyclical process, as you mentioned. So we start with this struggle phase, which is more explicit learning. There's a sense of fight or flight response, which I'll get to in a second. Actually, Stephen has this great quote, flow starts when you say yes to the fight. So there's this frustration. There is this um, sympathetic response physiologically that's happening in the body, more activation in certain parts of the brain before you actually enter into the flow state. After that, you have this release um, part of the cycle. So this sort of letting go phenomenologically. So like the felt subjective experience is like this sense, this felt sense of just letting go of the problem. That might mean taking your mind off the problem. Um, and that can happen on different sorts of timescales as well. A lot of that research comes from Herbert Benson's work um, out of Harvard. And he wrote a couple books, The Breakout Principle and The Relaxation Response, where he talks about there's this maybe pre-performance anxiety, a struggle phase, then a letting go, then you break out, and then there's this new normal. And so that's sort of analogous to this model of flow cycle. So the struggle, then this release. And in the release phase, there's an upregulation of the parasympathetic response. So the calm, the rest and digest. Um, so you have this sort of like antagonistic balance between this, the sympathetic part of the peripheral nervous system and the parasympathetic. So the fight, flight, or freeze with the rest and digest. And then as we enter the flow state, you have this co-activation of both. So you're alert, you're focused, you're ready to, you're engaged in the task, but you're also calm and collected and and so on. And that's really like the, the quintessential sort of flow state. Um, and then there's part brain areas that start, you know, reorganizing and talking to one another as well. After the flow state, after you sort of come out of the flow state, whatever that flow state is like in whatever kind of situation, which we'll get into to, um, you know, like the physical, as Rian was alluding to, or the sort of a cognitive aspect of flow, or maybe giving a public presentation or something like that. Then there's the recovery phase. And that's what Herbert Benson was talking about in terms of the, uh, the new normal. So flow is energetically exhausting. Um, you have a lot of neurochemistry at work. You have a lot of heightened brain activity in certain areas. Um, so it's metabolically, there's a lot of metabolic energy in, in an actual flow state to be able to really focus your attention and perform the task at, uh, you know, very well. Um, so, uh, this, this physiological recovery phase happens and at the flow research collective, we recommend all kinds of active recovery protocols to be more efficient, um, in getting, you know, back into that struggle phase. Um, now how that exists in time and Rian, you could speak to this as well. I mean, it exists in different timescales, right? You uh, you might have a rapid release if you're if you're giving a public presentation, for example, or going on a podcast and you're struggling to find the flow state. Then it might happen very quickly, and you could just sort of let go, maybe with some breath work or or some attentional regulation and mindfulness practices. You can quickly let go and then drop into a flow state. Other times, it might be a little bit more. Uh, there might be a little bit more time involved, right? We Einstein used to famously go sailing to let his to take his mind off the problem and let go in that kind of way. So there's different time scales that the flow cycle can sort of uh, you can navigate the flow cycle in different time scales. And the more I would say the more efficient you become at some of these techniques, um, the more you can navigate it in the time that you need to do it, whether it's doing an athletic activity or, like I said, a public presentation or so on. Is there a link? Is there a link between the struggle and the release, and then the flow? Like the bigger the struggle, the bigger the release, and then the greater the flow state, or is that not correlated? That's a good question. Um, I would say uh, they're not so correlated. I mean, you can you can have a a, a, alert, a lot when you're doing a like let's say you're giving a public presentation and you have to prepare for that. You're preparing a PowerPoint slide. You're doing all the research, you're figuring out how to communicate those concepts, that sort of explicit learning 
can happen over time, like let's say days to weeks, and then you actually give the public presentation. And right when you step on stage, there's this pre-performance anxiety. So the struggle, you know, temp, you know, in time shortens up to that sort of, you yep. know, that sort of moment. You're able to release, and then the, the presentation's an hour long, and you, it felt like it flew by. You you performed really well. It was it was some public speaking for some people like myself as a high flow activity. It's one of my main flow primary activities. Um, and so the hour long doesn't necessarily correlate to like the moment of struggle, you know, as I start to give the presentation versus all the time that I was spending preparing for it uh, and, and so on and so forth. It might be different in other situations for different people and different kinds of activities. I think flow is also very contextually dependent. Yep. Yeah, what you see as well, Daniel, which is interesting, is that a lot of activities that are the most conducive to flow have very acute moments of struggle that actually make the struggle phase of the cycle last less long, which is yep. part of why people enjoy doing those activities because there's a very quick burst of struggle and then they break through to flow with a very fast release phase. You know, again, to use the surfing example, that's a classic example. You know, yeah. there's there's a micro moment of struggle and then you have to be in flow, otherwise you're gonna fall off the wave. Uh, to use another action or adventure sports example, wingsuiting. You know, people talk about the fact that as soon as the wingsuit has, you know, expanded because of the air pressure, you're in flow and it's a state of flow or die. Whereas activities that have less acute struggle, like maybe engaging in a cognitive task in work, of course, you can still get into flow, but, you know, the acuteness of the struggle may make it more difficult to transition into flow. Um, so to Michael's point, it's not necessarily directly correlated, but you do see some variance across activities there. And just to build on Michael's point for a moment, I think one thing that is worth noting for folks listening is that often when we're trying to access flow more consistently, the focal point for people doing that tends to be on the flow state itself. But really one of the big things we teach is that if you master the other elements of the flow cycle, like the struggle phase, the release phase, and very importantly, the recovery phase, then accessing flow becomes over time more of an inevitability and it gets taken care of through taking care of the other phases of the flow cycle. And recovery in particular is a huge piece. One of the things we say is that, you know, the speed and effectiveness with which you can recover actually becomes the ceiling on your ability to access and cycle through flow uh, more so than anything that is occurring within the flow state itself. So yeah. that's just one thing worth bearing in mind. And then just another clarifying point around time duration, you know, people will use the word flow to describe all sorts of things because it's a onomatopoeic word that works well to describe lots of different feelings and emotions. We're referring to a flow state specifically, but people will say things like, oh, I've been in flow for the last three months. And, you know, they may mean that things have been working out really well for them or that they've been in a good mood or things like that. One state that was that would occur over a longer time interval that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi I used to refer to as vital engagement. And vital engagement is distinct from a flow state, but when people say, I've been in flow for the last few months, they usually mean I've been experiencing a state of vital engagement over the last few months. And vital engagement occurs when you are experiencing lots of moments of acute flow or lots of flow states. And then you get this overarching state of satisfaction and what people will often call momentum that Csikszentmihalyi used to call vital engagement. People will refer to that as flow. Technically, it's not a flow state, but it's an overarching experience that can happen over you know weeks or months if you're getting access to flow with frequency. Yeah, I'll add this one is... more component. I'll add one more quick component to that because in the when you're in the flow state between the flow state and the recovery, there's this notion of peak exits as well. And so peak exits is this notion of coming out of the flow state when you're at the height of the flow state and learning how to do that. And this has very interesting advantages. One is you can recover better um, when you come out of the flow state um, at a peak exit. And then, cause it's, again, it's energetically, um, you know, metabolically uh, very expenditure. And then the other reason is that you actually are able to have this return to the flow state and you can be more creative. Like there's this, you know, a lot of examples in 
in literature, Ernest Hemingway would stop writing in the middle of a sentence and, and so on, right when he was in the middle of a flow state. And there's other examples. So learning and cultivating that skill of knowing how to exit a flow state could be very, very beneficial for navigating the flow cycle as well. Hmm. I have a couple of oh. questions. Sorry, Daniel. Um, one is, do you feel that your attention shifts in the brain? So say, for example, going out to give, give a public talk, Michael, and you feel the nerves beforehand. And I'm interested about the struggle phase because when people hear the word struggle, they kind of hear, they're thinking, I don't want to experience that. But you're talking about a state of nerves whereby you're not too stressed or you're not too relaxed. You're kind of in that, it's an increased stress response, but it's not too much that you're going to bottle it. You know, you're, you're going to bottle up. So, but when you actually go out on stage, do you feel there's a shift of attention towards the center or to the back of the head? And do you actually hold your attention there and hold deliberately hold your attention in that place to access that flow states? That's a great question, Patrick. A um, couple of things I want to say is one, I feel there is a shift in attention from what's going on inside my body to the task, the action that I'm doing, the task that I'm doing to the external world, right? And so there's this notion of interoception, which is being sensitive to the things going on inside you. You're like, I'll feel my heart beating a little bit harder, right? And more, and um, I'll maybe have the, the, the sensations in my gut. Maybe the muscles will be tense. Normally, and you write about this in the Oxygen Advantage quite well, um, but, it's amazing the this 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 visceral sensation that's going on inside you so being more attuned to that now when you're more attuned to that it has a lot of advantages in terms of your being able to focus and switch to a flow state and you know there's this sensation of switching from the inside to the outside um that's more of a physiological or a psychophysiological kind of phenomenon um what's going on inside the body and um so you you you, you do feel this switch like phenomenologically of, again, this letting go and you're getting into a flow state. And the next thing you know, you're just an action. This is one of the phenomenological characteristics of flow as Rian said, action and awareness merge, right? That means that this, this sense of what you're doing and the being aware of it are just, they just come into being, they're just one. Uh, and it's a very, very felt sense. So there is that you're, you're really hinting upon something very interesting, that phenomenological sense of why flow feels flowy, which is why, of course, Csikszentmihalyi mm -hmm. named it that, right? You're effortlessly being propelled from one action to the next. Yeah, uh, big... I, I, could, I feel it, to be honest with you, and I don't know what's going on. And I've never actually came across that if I'm to go out on stage and the nerves are just right, I will automatically bring my attention to the back of the head and I hold my attention there. And the critical mind is almost just put aside and bringing right. attention, dispersing it throughout the body and going out and talking as if you're talking with every cell of the body, that you're fully immersed in the present moment, which I'm assuming is also flow states or in the zone, that there's words that are synonymous. But I'm also just wondering, because for me, a quick access point is just shifting attention, that we can do it in split seconds. And I'm wondering, has there ever been anything done on that in terms of looking at the ch changes in the brain structure or where we bring our attention that we could access it not just that, that our attention in the brain moves, our activity in the brain moves, but if we were act actively switching our attention to, di to different parts of the brain, could we speed it up? I don't know. So uh, so thanks for ask answering, Michael. Yeah. yeah, and Michael, just to elaborate on that a little bit, it might be worth just speaking to the downregulation of the prefrontal cortex with transient hyperfrontality and then maybe what's happening with the default mode network. The other yeah. thing that I would wonder, Patrick, um, and there's some research on this, is just whether that's become a behavioral cue mm -hmm. that triggers flow for you. We can actually use classical conditioning, basic classical conditioning, to create our own triggers for flow over time, whether it's you know putting on a certain set of headphones before you work, or coffee, or one common example from Josh Wadeskin in his book, The Art of Learning, is listening to a song before any activity within which you know you have a high likelihood of accessing flow. And then you start to listen to that same song before activities that you don't normally access flow and it starts to become a behavioral cue that drives flow. So there may be a chance that, you know, that attentional switch that you're doing, you know, has become a cue that triggers flow for you over time. 
But Michael, maybe you want to expand on what's yeah. happening with the prefrontal cortex and the default mode network as well. Yeah, yeah. And just pick it back on that right where you just left off, Rian, is that because of neuroplasticity, um, you which is the brain's ability to let me just define that first, right? For everybody. The the, the brain's ability this is the fundamental basis for all learning. Um, the brain's ability to rewire and reconnect itself. Um due to certain stimuli or environmental stimuli or actions or behaviors that we take, right? And so because of neuroplasticity or what's been called synaptic plasticity, the synapses are the gaps between where the neurons in the brain connect, um, allude to the, or facilitate the ability to come up with these individual sorts of sensations and, and cues, as Rian was talking about, and triggers that can allow us to better access flow states for our own uh, activities and allow us to control our attention better. So that's that's a part of the neurobiological mechanisms behind that. Um, when the brain, and we just published a paper, I'll just pl plug in right there. <laughs> you know, we just we just actually published a paper in um, neuroscience and biobehavioral reviews on how the brain, the first few seconds for flow, we call it. So how the brain finds the flow state, and this is really based on a lot of Stephen Cutler's work. So there's this idea of transient hypofrontality as Rian was mentioning. So transient means just, you know, it's, it's, it's changing it's hypo. So it lowers and it's frontality. So like, yeah. you know, here in the prefrontal cortex, we now know that it's a little bit more complex and nuanced than that. Certain areas of the prefrontal cortex, like the medial, like sort of toward the midline of the brain prefrontal cortex are actually attenuating. They're shutting down back to that, your inner Woody Allen, your inner, critic sort of goes away that inner voice sort of goes away some parts of the prefrontal cortex are then reconnecting with other parts of the brain to in allow for more pattern recognition and lateral thinking and creativity um <clears throat> and then there's this idea of the default mode network as i mentioned earlier which is involved in self our you know rumination our self-referential thinking and ego and uh, that kind of thing and that sort of you know that sort of goes away as well that sort of um it, it loosens its grip let's just say, on other areas of the brain. This is essentially what happens with um, all breath. Like you talk about the neuroscience of breathing and the neuroscience of breath work, most kinds of you know dedicated techniques for breathing actually lower the default mode network in some way, shape, or form or another. Also, this is what psychedelics do um, and flow states. There's a commonality of all these kinds of things that get us into the present moment that lower that default mode network activity. Um, and it becomes very, very helpful for all these other non-conscious processes to come out. And, you know, what's below the tip of the iceberg, all of those things that we learn, those patterns come out and allow us to perform really well, which then has all these downstream effects on our psychological well-being and subjective well-being and so on. So, so if this is a state you want to be in, are there certain activities that you're that are more prone to flow states and how do you uh, trigger flow states? Yeah, I'll touch on that, Daniel. There's yep. four big frameworks that we think about when we think about accessing flow with more frequency. The first one is uh, flow blockers. So these are things that tend to show up that actually prevent or inhibit flow from occurring. First thing we want to do is remove the blockers for flow. The second frame or framework that we use, uh, we will call either flow proneness or flow readiness. So these are certain things that increase the likelihood that you will access flow. They don't necessarily trigger it directly, but they make you more predisposed to flow generally. Then you've got the flow triggers. And these are, these are triggers or preconditions that drive you into flow in any given moment. And then you've got what we talked about for the flow cycle. So we've got kind of blockers, Flow proneness, uh, the flow triggers, and the flow cycle are, are, are all the different ways to access flow. And what we will do is we will take activities that tend to be low in flow triggers. A lot of activities have triggers baked into them. And I'll give you some you know, examples of triggers. One that, that people are, are generally familiar with is the challenge skills balance, which says that we find flow when the challenge level of a given task just slightly outstrips our skill level such that we're stretching a little bit not to the point of being over aroused into a state of anxiety, but 
not to the point either that we're understimulated and in a state of boredom. We want the, the challenge level of an activity or a task we're engaging in to just slightly outstrip our skill level. So the challenge skills balance is one example of a flow trigger. Another example is what is called in the literature unambiguous or immediate feedback. So feedback is just information that we receive in response to taking a given action. A classic example that I always like to give immediate feedback is video gaming. Video gaming is incredibly effective at driving flow. One of the main reasons is that the, the feedback is highly unambiguous. It's very direct. You press a button on the controller and instantly things spread across the screen or the controller vibrates or you hear a certain noise and feedback's also immediate. So you take an action and immediately you receive feedback in response to that action, which drives you into flow. Another one of the triggers that Csikszentmihalyi refers to a lot in the literature are clear goals. And clear goals refer less to goal as in the outcome from the task and more goal as in the target of your attention in the moment as you move into engaging with the task. So the word goal actually is a little bit confusing there, I think. So an example of a clear goal, you know, if you're sitting down to do some kind of knowledge work would be the very first action that you wish to perform as you start engaging in the work. Maybe you're building a speech. The first thing you have to do is, you know, synthesize some research. And before you can even do that, you have to dig up the research papers from your Google Drive. The goal, the clear goal would be that very, very first action or operation that you have to perform. And the clearer the goals are, the, the more easily attention can go from divergent to convergent, the more easily you can kind of slide into flow. So what we will do is we'll take activities that tend to not be very rich in flow triggers, like certain kinds of knowledge work, and we'll have people intentionally bake in triggers for flow into those activities. Uh, and again, certain activities are very rich in flow triggers naturally, you know, and these are the classic things that people get into flow doing. I mentioned some action and adventure sports examples, creative activities are also very rich in, in triggers for flow, you know, playing music or performing or acting, things like that. They have a lot of triggers like risk, which is one of the triggers for flow. Novelty is a trigger for flow. Uh, complexity is another trigger for flow that you see in a lot of those activities. So, so that's kind of the general approach that we take is removing the blockers, adding flow readiness or flow proneness. We can talk about some of the ways to do that. Then directly adding triggers into given activities and then making sure people are effectively moving through the flow cycle as well. So that's it. That's what it looks like at a conceptual level. Michael, feel free to, to add anything or build on that as well. Yeah, yeah. Two points I want to make. One is with regard to the flow triggers themselves, once you... Um, like Rian is saying, learn how to bake them into the activities that you're doing. You can, you can increase the likelihood of getting into flow in that type of activity, right? But then there's also the other way around. You can see this as looking at your entire life through the lens of the flow triggers. And once you get good at that, you start to cultivate also your brain's ability to achieve a flow state as well. So where in your life can you add novelty? Where in your life can you increase the challenge relative to your skills? Where can you tighten feedback loops? Where can you have more clear goals? So just like sort of literally, well, not literally, seeing your life at, you know, as at, in the framework of the flow triggers themselves. The other point I'll make with, res with respect to the challenge skills balance, which is, is sort of the most well-studied flow trigger. And this, Patrick, this actually, so I'm going to tie two points of the conversation here. Patrick, this relates to your question about the struggle, which I, mm. I actually didn't get to an answer when you were talking about the shift in, in brain area. So there's this in, in the literature, which is now very well evidence-based and empirically founded, there's this, there's this scientific notion of the Yerkes-Dodson curve. So what this curve is, it's a it's an inverted U curve. So it looks like that. And on one axis, the Y axis, you have your level of performance. And then on the other axis, the X axis, you have your level of stress or arousal. Let's just call it in psychology. And it turns out that there's this Goldilocks zone. There's this sort of sweet spot for optimal performance. If you're too if you're not stressed enough, you're too underwhelmed, you're you're checked out, you're bored performance drops. Likewise, if you are too stressed out, um, you're overworked, you're over challenged, 
right? And you're frustrated and you're anxious, that's also not going to produce optimal performance. So performance is very low on that side. So you want to have just the right amount of stress in the right context. There's good stress and bad stress and learning how to navigate those and understand the difference between those. It's called eustress and distress in the literature um, can get you into that flow channel back to now this challenge skills balance. So your challenge, the challenge is, you know, appropriately matched to the the perceived challenge of the activity that you're doing is appropriately matched to the skill set that you're bringing. So that's why you want to be just enough frustrated, just enough struggle, just enough challenge to really focus your attention. And, and we see that in the brain. When that happens, parts of the brain fire off that um, like the locus ceruleus, which, which is a, the birthplace of neuropinephrine, which is involved in focusing your attention, also mood and and motivation and things like that it fires at just the right amount that part of the brain which is in, in deep in the, the the medulla oblongata there in the, the brain stem starts firing at just the right amount when you're just challenged enough it's, it's amazing mm. it's very interesting you know there's so many things that are coming into my head here we could be here all day um <laughs> i'm just thinking about somebody who's caught a lot and taught i was when i was in my early 20s and my teenage years i would always be ruminating and lost in thought and waking up very tired. And I don't think I would have been able to access flow states there because even when I had my attention put on something, my attention was looking through this veil, this screen or many screens before it actually, you know, what went on the desired area. So that's one question just, so is it accessible to everybody is one question. Um, the second question is our everyday habits can it impact flow states? In other words, if we're constantly responding to emails and then we've got text messages and we've got this and we've got that and our external environment is total, we've distractions everywhere, we've distractions in the mind, can we automatically then get into flow states like that? Or So there's two questions in this and I'm not sure who's going to answer this, Rain or Michael. Um, can everybody access this? Okay, the person with poor sleep, the person with anxiety, the person with panic disorder, that individual. And the next aspect is, what about the normal individual but is so distracted by their, their lifestyle? Do need, they need to be looking at their macro environment before they're able to target flow states? I'll, I'll touch on a few of those, Michael, for a moment. Um, first off, Anyone can access flow, but again, the flow proneness of different individuals would, you know, may vary significantly uh, based potentially on genetic factors. Michael, maybe you can speak a little bit to the, sure. the high flow personality or the autotelic personality, which is something Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about that certain people actually have uh, at the personality or trait level, a larger disposition to getting into flow. And then there are, you know, other things behaviorally that decrease or increase flow proneness. Um, Dr. Ned Hallowell coined a, a, a concept called attention deficit trait, which is quite similar to ADHD, but it's environmentally and behaviorally induced rather than genetically induced. It's fairly similar in, in symptom set though. And ADT, attention deficit trait, would be one example of something that would decrease flow proneness dram dramatically. And, you know, there are, there are ways that you can exacerbate or worsen ADT or decrease ADT. You know, a common way that people end up with attention deficit trait is excessive task switching, mismanagement of, you know, their technology and the way in which they engage with, you know, notifications and things like that. So there's a whole host of behavioral changes that we recommend for distraction management and reducing any kind of attention deficit trait-like symptoms. One thing that we tend to recommend is attempting to increase your, your sensitivity to dopamine. There's kind of a meme that has caught on in the last few years around dopamine detoxing and things like that, which has questionable neuroscientific underpinnings because you know, you can't literally detox from dopamine, but there is some research suggesting that you can become desensitized to dopamine inputs, which means that, you know, when you're engaging in a task that uh, 
upregulates dopamine, your your attention is going to be funneled less into the now than if you were more sensitive to dopamine. So that's one of the things we'll do is we'll help people, you know, intentionally kind of bring down their baseline on boredom and what bores them. If you are, you know, um, bored by less, meaning it's it's harder for you to become bored, then tasks that are very cognitively demanding that aren't particularly stimulating, that aren't flooding your brain with dopamine by pressing on the nucleus accumbens, all of a sudden those tasks become more interesting and more enthralling, and it becomes easier to locate and funnel your attention onto those tasks and sustain it on those tasks. And a simple example I always like to use is, you know, if you bash through TikTok for 20 minutes, which is, you know, going to result in your nucleus accumbens basically being ringed like a sponge yeah. with dopamine just squirting all over your brain. Pretty much what every teenager is doing at the moment. And yeah. it's, not, it's not even for 20 minutes. I have yeah. a teenager it's... inside inside and trying to get her <laughs> off a mobile phone, I have to say, is... Uh... <laughs> it, it's scary, you know, it's scary yeah. because... You, you do that, yeah, you do that for whatever amount of time, maybe way longer than 20 minutes. And then you sit down and you start to engage with something that is very low in cognitive stimulation, like maybe writing a 2000 word history paper or something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, the the, the dopamine threshold or level in, in task A, which was TikTok relative to task B has just fallen off a cliff. So all of a sudden it's incredibly difficult to, you know, stimulate your attention enough to be able to focus and sustain focus on the task. Whereas if task A was something that was very, very, very low in stimulation, like going for a walk with no music or, you know, focusing on your breathing, yeah, focusing on your breathing, exactly doing some breath work, then all of a sudden task B writing that history paper is actually more stimulating at the relative level than the first task. And so attention is more easily captured and funneled into the moment and it's easier to sustain attention wow. and obviously get into flow as well. So, yeah. you know, the, the kind of tasks you engage with in advance of the task you're trying to get in the flow within matters tremendously as one example there. Yeah, if you did, I'm oh, sorry, Michael, no, go ahead, if you did some breathing exercises then prior to a difficult task, and you do breathing exercises to downregulate, dampen sympathetic drive, or dampen the stress response. Could the breathing exercises make you too relaxed that you don't then get into that struggle phase to access the flow? In other words, could the breathing exercise help on one hand, but sabotage you on the other hand? Or do you do a combination? Do you do downregulation first and then do upregulation so you're in a better state of mind before going into the task? Most people, at least the ones we work with, who tend to be type A and hard charging, struggle way more with down regulation than up regulation. That tends to be the issue. And so we, we teach a whole set of skills around what we call distraction recovery, which is basically doing exactly what you know you just mentioned, where you engage in, in some kind of a task that has just fractured your attention and overstimulated you. You need to engage in another task that requires you to be you know able to hone and sustain focus. And you need some kind of transition ritual or bridge that that resets your nervous system, you know, and, and the overall level of stimulation. Uh, usually people's problem is being overstimulated because the thing they've just done, you know, scattered and fragmented their attention. And so generally, uh, we don't necessarily see that people end up under aroused and that that's the issue for for flow. Theoretically, that is possible, though, because as Michael mentioned, you know, you've got that inverted U, Yerkes-Dodson curve that is demonstrating overall arousal. And you do want arousal to be at a sweet spot where you're calm and alert. You know, you're not you're not on one extreme or the other. You're not over aroused or under aroused. But generally, down regulating people lands them in the sweet spot, in our that, experience, at least. That, that seems like heart rate variability could be. Uh, a metric that's uh, if not one-to-one -one, but correlated what's your experience from because we use it all the time in oar rings yeah. or whoop straps or whatever what's your experience from that well that's actually a good proxy perhaps by which you can actually navigate the flow cycle by the way using heart rate variability because it helps you with recovery and it also helps you with um a whole so it's a metric and a, it's a measure for so many, so many different things, emotional regulation, decision-making, um, being able to 
focus and pay attention and that kind of thing. So it's it's a really good proxy for helping. I use it all the time, my heart rate variability to actually help me predict when I'm able to more likely get into a flow state with a particular activity, how I should recover till I try and get in a, you know, an, another flow state, the next flow state. So that's a, um, I, we highly recommend paying attention to that. Um, and that's also provides good feedback, right? right. It's like one of the part of this notion of quantified self, which in my view, if used correctly, can really give you that immediate feedback to help you, to help drive you into a flow state. Would you, you say, cause we work with athletes, uh, that if you if you have a certain baseline, if you're close to that or higher in, in the baseline, you're more prone to get into flow states and more prone to have a higher performance versus if your right. heart rate variability was lower on that day, 10, 20, 30%. Is there a correlation over time with performance and heart rate variability, you think, for athletes or for CEOs for that matter, but particularly for athletes? Yes, I think there's absolutely, and there's plenty of evidence in the literature that that supports that. Um, the, the heart rate variability as a measure of, let's say, capturing vagal tone, right? So it captures parasympathetic balance, while it captures autonomic nervous system balance, right? Uh, part of different ways to measure heart rate variability capture that. So the, the low frequency versus high frequency ratio is a measure of sympathovagal balance, it's called. And understanding how those two branches of the peripheral nervous system, the autonomic nervous system are balanced can help actually with a whole host of outcomes. As I said, cognitive outcomes, emotional outcomes, um, even your ability to, for example, recognize emotions on other people's faces. So it's been shown that people with higher heart rate variability have more intonation in their voice. They have more active facial expressions and they're better at recognizing facial expressions on other people's faces. So it has a social uh, heart rate variability component as well, which is probably good for group flow. Um, and so it, yeah, there, there's so many different kinds of mood, uh, inflammation, um, resilience, uh, adaptability, uh, again, decision-making, anxiety, all of these things have been correlated with heart rate variability. So uh, it's just a very, what we're discovering now as a psychophysiological metric that it's correlated to is, it's amazing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add a quick. Go sorry, ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I'll just add a quick uh, quick anecdote to that. So we we did some uh, some research and work with a guy called Don Moxley, who was a wrestling coach at Ohio State University. And he actually got it to the point with his wrestling team where he could predict with very, very high levels of accuracy whether they would win or lose just based on HRV. Yeah. Uh, and he actually found that the biggest lever for whatever reason for his wrestlers on, on increasing HRV was uh, the use of sensory deprivation chambers or float tanks. And so he would, you know, he would have them use float tanks in advance of wrestling, obviously measuring HRV. And then based on how far they were from their baseline HRV in lieu of a wrestling match, he was able to predict success essentially. Do you so, know if that was the day before same day? Do you know the time frame? I don't, I don't know the time frame. Yeah. I believe it was, uh, multiple data points that he would use the yeah. day before and same yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that would be highly interesting for athletes, like the readiness factor. Uh, then you have the recovery on back of that, but the readiness is, uh, so if you could, if you could actually see your HRV the days before, uh, you know, slumping a little bit and you can actually do something about it, that mm -hmm. I think that would be uh, very interesting. Cause, and I think actually I, I listened to, to him as well. I think you had a podcast with him or something. Yeah. So I, I heard that. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I wanted to go back to a point that we were talking about earlier. There is some evidence in, at the brain that, um, so it's been shown that people um, with more dopamine receptors in reward parts of the brain um, have a higher, that correlates with higher levels of flow proneness dopamine D2 receptors. So there even is some sort of neurobiological and it's really about like rewiring your brain to experience rewards in different ways. What rewards you internally, externally at this extreme end of that is what we were talking about is addiction, right? Like it could be a gambling addiction or, or something like that. But um, it's all about what motivates you intrinsically versus extrinsically we talk a lot about intrinsic motivation to go back to this curiosity, autonomy, passion purpose which are also flow triggers 
um, Rian mentioned the autotelic personality, which Chicks at Me High talks about having a low self-centeredness and just loving activities for the sake of doing the activities themselves, not for the sort of the outcome of the activities, right? It's intrinsically rewarding. You're the just doing the activity itself is rewarding. And the more you can get to that level, the more you can get to to flow and then all higher levels of mental wellness and well-being. So. We, we'd want to start getting jobs then that we love to do, Michael, because uh, if you can imagine, there's a lot of people doing activities they will never love and they're doing it for the sake of financial return. I think our education system um, really needs to kind of step up to the plate in terms of readiness, resilience, and teaching people how to access these states. And I'm conscious that we've only a few minutes left, but the people who can access flow states, what sort of people are they? What does it mean to what they can achieve? You know, any of us, of course, in Western society, we want to do the best and we want to achieve self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Are we more readily to achieve that by being able to access flow states? In other words, are we more productive? Are we more creative? Are we more intuitive? Do we produce better quality of work? Do we have fresh and original insights? So just for the person listen, what are the advantages of it? Rian, let me, let me jump in here real quick. As Rian said, echoing what Rian said, anybody can achieve the flow state. And there's just so much evidence now that flow helps prevent burnout. It helps prevent depression. It increases subjective well-being. It also increases psychological well-being. And so, which have been distinguished in the literature as well. Um, I think, you know, Chick sent me high has this quote, the optimal state of inner experience is one in which there's order and consciousness. And what he meant was, if you cultivate this activity to order the contents of your consciousness, to be able to control your attention in any situation, whether that's a, a flow activity or or just, or, or, or you're reading a book, which is a flow activity for many people, um, you have all of these downstream effects on your life, right? This is what positive psychology is really all about. The E in PERMA model, positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. The E is engagement. So learning those kinds of things uh, has all of these, and, and studies are coming out at now every week on flow and well-being and flow and mental health. And that kind of thing. So I, I definitely want to, my bottom line is that flow is accessible, right? This, this notion of even, even higher level notion of positive psychology is accessible to all of us. And not only that, the more we try and get into that, it's going to have all of these effects, not only like individually, but culturally and like anthropologically, and it's going to help us solve grand global challenges like climate change. I mean, a study just came out last year, a fascinating, fascinating study looking at four dimensions and their relation to ecological well-being, ecological well-being. So they looked at awe, they looked at mindfulness, they looked at psychedelics, and they looked at flow, these four different dimensions. And they found that people who experience these things in the right context in the right way have much higher levels of ecological sustainability and ecological well-being so they feel more connected to the earth they feel more connected to each other they feel more connected to themselves so the the impacts of this idea of cognitive enhancement and and getting these experiences uh will have profound ramifications for humanity so it's almost as if they're more content and less greedy Am I reading that right? That, yeah, I think I think Patrick, that's right, and I think that actually goes back to a point you made about loving what you do. You know, if you flow and loving what you do are very, very tightly interwoven. In fact, you know, we would argue, and again, there's a lot of strong literature to support this. That if you say, you know, I love what I do, that that is very tightly coupled to saying I get access to flow a lot doing what I do, mm-hmm. um, and you know, arguably the reason there maybe is less greed, which would be a source of extrinsic motivation is because flow is worthwhile in and of itself. It's autotelic. Classic example is when you're listening to a song, you listen to the song. You don't, you know, click play and then skip to the end to get the song listening done. 
you listen to the song for the sake of listening to the song. It's the same with being in flow and any activity that flow produces is the activity becomes worthwhile in and of itself. So there's less need or drive to kind of scramble or grab from the external world for other things that will satiate or satisfy or fulfill you. And then just, just the final thing I'll mention on loving what you do is that one way of getting clarity on that, that I recommend is not necessarily thinking through what you are passionate about or what you love, but actually just thinking through strengths. There's a ton of research in positive psychology on strengths. And there's a researcher who's the founder of the Center for Applied Positive Psychology called Dr. Alex Lindley, who has a really great, very simple strength spotting checklist. And if you, if you find, your, find your strengths and you attempt to compose your career as much as possible around your strengths, that is going to be a really strong predictor for flow. And the access to flow creates the love for those activities. And then because you're getting access to flow in those activities, you tend to get even better at those activities. So the strength amplifies, which further results in flow amplifying, which further results in more love for what you do. So it becomes this virtuous cycle from strength to flow, to loving it, to getting better, to getting more flow and so on and so forth. So I think that can be kind of a practical uh, avenue into finding out what you love to do is, is, is starting with strengths. That's amazing. So for say a teenager, <clears throat> that's in high school and they were wondering what are they going to do? Because of course it's a, it's a very challenging question for them. They will write down if they're, if they like talking to people, do they like, can you break it down a little bit more detail in terms of that? Um, in terms of, so it's not just if you like animals, that's my strength. That's not necessarily strength, but that's what I like to do how would you break the strength down? Um, you're good at talking to people, could be a strength. You're able to deal with stress, could be a strength. Exactly, exactly. You're a hard so, worker, could be a strength. Exactly. And, and well, what's important to note as well is that it doesn't map perfectly. What you're strong at doesn't perfectly map to what you love to do. But generally, if you abstract it up far enough, you can find the underlying strength to your point that does map to loving what you do. So, you know, an example may be that someone is really good at being a dentist and doing dental work, but they kind of hate it. They don't necessarily like it that much. But if they abstract up away from that activity, maybe they realize that actually the backdrop strength is not necessarily dental work, but it is, you know, engaging in tactile activities with a very high attention to detail when the consequences are high. Yeah. And that's actually the strength. That, that is the backdrop to dental work. And then they decide to repurpose that strength toward, uh, you know, making pottery, maybe, for example. And then all of a sudden, you know, the same strength is mapping more tightly to something that they actually do love to do. So if we can find the strengths that are the backdrop by abstracting a little bit away from the activities within which we apply them, we can get a more accurate breakdown of, of what our strengths are. And also the more accurate that breakdown is, the more easily we can figure out different places to apply those strengths rather than them being too kind of tightly coupled to certain activities. So there's a distinction between strengths and skills in the, in this sense. And exactly. Yeah. And you want to be able to like make that distinction consciously and intentionally and understand that distinction to be able to then remap and match that in an appropriately way that you, that facilitates getting into flow. Yeah. It's amazing stuff um daniel final words and yeah, um, what i'll do I, is well, just yeah. a... many many final words but i'll do <laughs> i'll do one like how do you use if at all i'm sure you do breathing for longevity but also for maybe uh triggering flow states how 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 big of a um is that a key uh tool that you use and uh, can you expand on that yes oh God, i'm happy so to give it a Quick answer. Go uh, yeah, go and ahead. Then maybe you, you can speak I, to I'll, the, the I'll probably talk too much on this topic and then we'll, we'll go farther than we need to go. <laughs> I uh, So I like to think about the different categories of breathing based on their effect duration. Um, so how long the effect that they have tends to last. And, for, and this is really just anecdotal for myself. I will use what Dr. Andrew Huberman calls the doublet breath, where you do a long inhale into the nose and then you kind of uh, sniff hard and you get this, this really rapid but slight parasympathetic uptick 
the effect duration from that is, is fairly brief. You get, you know, like a brief hit of, of down regulation. Then I'll use something like, you know, Wim Hof's uh, breathing, which, which actually, I believe, upregulates the nervous system as you're doing it. You would know much better than I would, Patrick, on this. Uh, but then it also, it has a longer effect duration that, you know, balances the ANS um, over a longer time period like that day. And then I like to do um, holotropic breathing, uh, which has, I, I can have, I think, a lifelong effect duration in terms of the insights or ideas or, or sort of mm. personal transformation you can experience during something like holotropic breathwork, which obviously happens over multiple hours. So I'll do that on a you know much less frequent basis, maybe quarterly. So that's, that's the way I think about it personally, and, and kind of apply it to myself. Um, and I find you know those first two in particular help with flow and other activities. And then the third one, holotropic breathing, you can get into a sort of flow state, actually, you know, doing it directly as well. Mm -hmm. And then there's also box breathing as well, which a lot of people talk about to help facilitate flow state. That's breathing in for four or five seconds, inhale, holding, breath holding for four or five seconds, exhaling for four to five seconds, and then holding also for four to five seconds um, as well. And that has differential effects on your 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 uh, autonomic nervous system as well that might actually help facilitate focus in certain aspects. Famously, the Navy SEALs uh, yep. use that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. But... Um, I, I don't know if I want to like start my part because then I'll just <laughs> derail into a whole neuroscience of breath work and neuroscience of breathing talk. But I will just say, yeah, I'll echo Rian's uh, sentiment on that. Um, and um, I think there's ways to think about this categorically as like acute things that you could do in the moment in real time online that might help you, um, you know, calm your nervous system. If you're with that pre-performance anxiety to help get into a letting go the part of the flow cycle to get into a flow state. But then there's also more sustainable practices that, that change the way brain areas talk to one another. So uh, coherent breathing or coherence or resonant breathing has been talked about this five and a half seconds, inhalation, no holding and then five and a half seconds, exhalation that actually has massive impacts on alpha power so like alpha brain waves um and high inter interbrain synchronization um really interesting study came out in 2020 on that um so getting a getting that into a practice doing that five to ten minutes a day can then help facilitate your brain because flow may lie on that border between alpha waves and theta waves and so you can actually rewire brain how brain areas talk to one another in their in the language of oscillation to facilitate the flows to getting into that entry, the, the, how the brain transitions and finds that flow state as we were talking about earlier. Mm. Those, are, those are two that I would talk about. We would yeah. love to see some research on breathing during physical exercise in yeah. terms of if you're breathing through your nose, there was one yeah. paper written back in 1996. It's only a small case study looking at accessing flow states with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't been been studied since because a lot of people do physical exercise and they go to the gym to for mental health reasons. You know, yeah. they go for a run to help bring a calmness to the mind. But if they were to do it with <clears throat> nose breathing versus mouth breathing, it might have a totally different um, benefit. Oh, you know, 100%. so yeah, yeah. A really sorry to cut you off. A really, really fascinating study by um, Antonio Zolano came out last year showing that uh, nasal breathing rather than mouth breathing. So when they were inhaling through their nose, the subjects were quicker to respond to fearful faces mm. on other people's faces. So like, like, or, or surprise, like, like this. So when they were, there was more activity in the hippocampus and less activity in the, in the amygdala, which is involved in threat detection, um, when they were inhaling through the nose versus the mouth and versus exhaling so people were so this suggests these results these data actually suggest that when you're in these kinds of situations inhaling through the nose um will will help you understand the situation better and be able to respond to it and yeah. in general even in general like non-conscious breathing when we inhale we're more of brain areas light up that are more involved in perception so sensor sensing out, out the outside world Versus when we're exhaling, people tend to actually then perform the action. 
right? So this is why, you know, like getting rid of that excess carbon dioxide and exhaling mm -hmm. just before you perform a task can actually prime your nervous system and put it in a proper place to be able to like perform that task more optimally. Michael, so we need more scientists like yourself, you know, in, in terms of, yeah, I think we think of the human nose as being a primitive sense that has been around. It's primordial. It's been here since day dot. We know via the olfactory nerve that when we breathe through the nose, there's a lot of communication to the brain that doesn't happen when we breathe through the mouth. Yes. And yet it has been overlooked. So I, I think this space in the next 10 years is going to be very, very interesting. I'm going to bring it to a close. It has been an absolute pleasure. It's been mm -hmm. fascinating. If people want to dig a little bit deeper into what you do, um, do you do courses? Do you have books? Do you have offerings for people who would like to de delve deeper for our instructors, but also for the general public? Yeah, I mentioned that briefly, Patrick. And again, thanks so much for having us on here. Um, so you can go to our website, Flow Research Collective. Uh, you can go to our podcast, Flow Research Collective Radio. Hopefully you guys will be on there as a guest soon and then we do have a peak performance training that shows you how to access flow state consistently it's a synthesis of about ten thousand research papers on flow that we have drawn from to create our own methodology for turning flow into a skill so that you can access flow state you know more reliably and consistently um, and you can find that on our website as well and is so. this for athletes or business people or is it for instructors working with clients it's primarily for uh, knowledge workers and leaders. Okay. Yeah. So it's workplace applied. Excellent. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you so, Thanks so much, guys. Thank you so much for having Take us. Care. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Oxygen Advantage podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and maybe take the time to leave us a review. The Oxygen Advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers.